For the first time in the history of emergency medicine cases, which normally brings Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine to you, we have with us a man who needs no introduction, Dr. Amal Matu from Baltimore. He's going to be our very first non-Canadian guest expert on emergency medicine cases. We're recording this from the Emergency Medicine Update Conference in Toronto. Dr. Matu, it's a pleasure and an honor. Welcome. Well, thanks. It's, it's an honor for me to be here. And uh, this is a really a great podcast that you've put together over the years. I'm happy to share what you call a best case. I call actually probably a worst case. So, But I think there's some great teaching points that we can talk about from this. All right, Amal, let it rip. Right, let's, well, let's hear your worst case ever, which I'm sure is the best case no, ever. <laughs> it was an awful case, actually. It's, it's one that I still think about oftentimes. It was from residency. I was a second-year resident in Philadelphia, and I was rotating through Methodist Hospital, which is in South Philadelphia, which for people that know Philadelphia, this South Philly is probably the maybe the cheesesteak capital of the country, and there's a lot of heart disease. So it's a great place to rotate, but a lot of heart disease, a lot of lung disease, and a lot of older patients living in, in South Philly. And we had a, a pretty routine patient dropped off, what we call a pop drop, and that's when the family comes by and drops off pop and says, uh, he's not acting right, and we're heading to the mall. Uh, literally, that's what happened. What they said was that uh, their father, who's 68 years old, and had a multitude of underlying medical problems, including COPD. He was still smoking about a pack a day of cigarettes, though wasn't on oxygen yet. He also had a known history of coronary disease and hypertension. They said that over the past week or so, he had been coughing a lot. And then over the past day, he just hadn't been acting right. He had become lethargic. And they actually called paramedics. Paramedics arrived there and put the guy on oxygen. And it seemed like he perked right up and they accompanied the paramedics to the hospital with their dad. And when he arrived, he was somewhat awake, but then he started becoming somnolent once again. So I figure this is a pretty classic COPD type of exacerbation. Typically, these patients may develop a pneumonia or something that sets off their lung problems. And at home, they start becoming hypoxic, which makes them have a decreased level of consciousness. Paramedics arrive, they put them on oxygen, they wake up. But now, because of the oxygen, they start hypoventilating, and then after an hour or two, they start becoming hypercarbic and becoming somnolent all over again. So it's a, a very classic history. They're sleepy, then they wake up on oxygen, then they get sleepy again. Well, he's a 68-year-old guy with a lot of other medical problems. So in addition to thinking about COPD, we're also worried about other types of infections and just about anything which can make an elderly patient have a decreased mental status could be cardiac disease, could be an infection, could be meningitis. I distinctly remember the family coming to me and saying, you know, we want to go to the mall. Is Pop going to be okay? Well, at this point, he was starting to wake up a little bit. And so I remember telling them, yeah, he's going to be fine. It's just a routine COPD exacerbation. No problem. Head off to the mall. Famous last words, eh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I never tell people to go to the mall anymore. Anyway, <laughs> they took off, and uh, we had this patient in our midst. We got the EKG, it looked pretty good, got a chest X-ray, and he had hyperinflation of his lungs, classic COPD-looking patient. Maybe he had the early signs of a pneumonia, and that could account for why he started off with the coughing and then developed what appeared to be a COPD exacerbation. 
labs were sent off. His white count was uh, pretty unremarkable. I would say the white count's the last refuge of the intellectually destitute because a normal white count can be anything. A high white count can be anything. So we didn't pay much attention to the white count, and it, it didn't really help. His hematocrit was about 50, like most COPD patients. And the chemistries were pretty unremarkable. I think he was just a little hypokalemic, again, probably because he had been using his inhaler before he started going down. We put him on some oxygen, low flow, and started some NEBS. But then, as I mentioned earlier, he started getting somnolent. So we got a blood gas, and no surprise, he was very hypercarbic. He had a respiratory acidosis. His pH was about 7.1. His PCO2 was up in the 80s to 90s. And because we didn't really have any room to work with the oxygen, he was only on a couple of liters of oxygen. And if we took him off that, he was going to end up desatting. We knew at this point, this guy needs to be intubated. Uh, we can't go up on the oxygen. We can't go down on the oxygen. He needs a ventilator. So no problem. We're all well-trained with rapid sequence intubation. And I think back then we are using maybe Versed and succinylcholine. This is a little bit before the Atomidate days. Yeah, you're telling your age there, Amal. <laughs> yeah, a little bit there. But we were using paralytics. So, so. <laughs> anyway, I think just to point out my age here, I, I think he actually got a defasciculating dose of VEC before, <laughs> before the succinylcholine as well. So that was pretty routine back then. I guess it was uh, early to mid-90s. And no problem. His, his tube is in. Respiratory therapy comes on down. And while they're setting up the vent, we're bagging him. And you think about how normally patients get bagged right after the intubation. You know, it was something like bag, 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 bag. We're trying to make sure his oxygen's okay. He was probably being bagged. We didn't realize it, but we were probably bagging him at, in retrospect, maybe about 50 to 60 times a minute, which is how we'd always bag people after they get intubated. So now he gets put on the ventilator and it's time to get this guy up to the unit. Now, again, a sign of the times back then, there were ICU beds. <laughs> so I call up the ICU attending and uh, tell him that there's a patient who had COPD exacerbation, probable pneumonia. We start some, started some antibiotics. He needs to go up to the ICU. And while I was on the phone with the ICU attending, the nurse comes running out and says that this guy, Mr. Jones, has lost pulses. So I hung up on the attending and ran back into the room to find out what's going on. And sure enough, He's got no pulses. Uh, he does have a rhythm on the monitor, so he's got PEA. So I start thinking about all the different things in that differential for PEA, severe acidosis and hypothermia and massive MI, massive PE, a pericardial tamponade, tension pneumothorax, you know, all the different, the overdose, all, all the usual things. And the, the two main things that came to mind at this point, since ZKG was normal and there wasn't any abrupt onset of prior shortness of breath. I wasn't thinking PE. I thought about pericardial tamponade. Quickly ruled that out in my head at least because his chest x-ray did not show any cardiomegaly. And then I used this thing that people don't really use much anymore, but back then we used to use this thing called a stethoscope. <laughs> and so I actually, believe it or not, I, I did a physical exam. I took a listen to his lungs and I heard completely clear lung sounds on one side, <laughs> uh, but nothing on the other side. So he, he had a pneumothorax and he probably developed a tension pneumo. So I grabbed an 18 gauge spinal needle, stuck it into the chest and decompressed. I heard the uh, sound of air coming out. Now, in, in those days, you did the decompression, the midclavicular line, mid-clavicular second, second intercostal space. Exactly. How do you decompress your tension pneumothoraces these days? Uh, well, 
usually we'll um, we'll still do midclavicular, but sometimes we'll go axillary. It kind of depends on the patient's body habitus, to be honest with you, because uh, we we have so many very large patients that uh, we'll, we'll go where we see less soft tissue. I'll put it that way. Okay. So, Baltimore and Ontario <laughs> have uh, a few things in common there. Yes, the patient population is growing in more ways than one. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, he, he got needle decompression. Then I, I put a chest tube in, and I was feeling pretty good by this point. I was a second-year resident. I got an intubation. I got a needle decompression, and I got a chest tube. This is a fantastic case. So anyway, his pulses are back. Now, I should also mention that when I went into the room initially, he was on the vent. And one of the things I had learned is that when somebody's crashing and they're on the vent, you take them off the vent and you bag them. First up. And you, you need to rule out any vent problems. And, and so when I was doing the chest tube, he was still off the vent and being bagged. And uh, it never occurred to us that bagging rate was important. And so he was getting bag, 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 and then he got put back on the vent. And uh, now he's got a chest tube in, and I went back out to the phone, called up the ICU attending to update him and tell him that the COPD patient now has a chest tube. And uh, while I was on the phone, the nurse comes running out once again and says, he's lost his pulses again. So I went back into the room and went through that differential all over again. The vent seems to be working okay. And I'm still not worried about pericardial tamponade. My needle decompression didn't go that far in. (laughs) So I'm not worried about (laughs) penetrating trauma to the heart. It ended up being that he had lost his lung sounds on the other side now. So he had developed a tension pneumo on the other side. So he got another needle decompression and another chest tube. And uh, then when I called the ICU attending back uh, to tell him that this guy had bilateral tension pneumos after two cases of PEA, bilateral needle decompressions, bilateral chest tubes, he asked me a simple question, which I had never thought of before. This ICU attending said, how fast were you guys bagging the patient when he was off the vent? And uh, at that point, I suddenly realized that we were bagging him pretty fast. And that was pretty routine. We never really gave it a second thought, but we were bagging him pretty fast. And it was in all likelihood, our rapid bagging of this patient that caused him to develop the tension pneumothoraces. Can you just remind our listeners how slow, let's put it in those terms, how slow should we be bagging patients like this? All right. So in general, when you've got, well, we we can go through a couple scenarios. In cardiac arrest, we're taught that you need to bag at about 10 times per minute. And that's about one bag every six seconds. So if you were to count it out, it would be bag, two, three, four, five, six, bag, two, and, and so on. That's how slow it is. It's really, really slow. In fact, some of your listeners may have fallen asleep during that last count. It's really slow. And when your adrenaline is rushing with a really sick patient or a cardiac arrest, it is physically nearly impossible to bag somebody that slow. So as a co-team leader, you've got to tell people to slow down, slow down, slow down. Because not only can it injure their lungs, but it also decreases venous return, which decreases cardiac output. In COPD patients and asthma patients, it's equally important to bag probably about that slow, not because you're worried as much about the venous return, but largely because you're really concerned about lung compliance. COPD patients 
and elderly patients have decreased lung compliance and they can pop their lungs very, very quickly. Also remember that COPD and asthma patients, they need a really long exhalation phase. They exhale very, very slowly. So if you're bagging too fast, they simply don't have enough time to exhale all the air you just bagged in. And what ends up happening is what we call breath stacking. You pump a whole bunch of air in, not all of it comes out. Then you pump a whole bunch more in, not all of it comes out. Pump a whole bunch more in, and pretty soon, they've got so much pressure in their poorly compliant lungs that they'll just pop a lung if you're bagging too fast. And it, that was not something that I thought of for even a millisecond when I was taking care of this patient. And our excessively rapid bagging of this patient resulted in a pneumothorax on one side, and then once again, excessively rapid bagging caused a tension pneumo on the other side. I've never made that mistake again. I kind of learned the hard way. And now I'm extremely vigilant about bagging rates and ventilation rates in anybody who's got asthma and COPD. Unfortunately, my learning this uh, cost this guy his life. He ended up being admitted and uh, the next day ended up dying. I don't know if he died simply because of the tension pneumos, but almost certainly those added to his list of comorbidities. And any elderly patient with a pneumonia, now you give him uh, pneumothoraces, he's, he's not going to do well. And so a couple of things that I remember and have learned from this case for sure. Number one, with asthma, COPD, and elderly patients, I'm very, very careful to not bag them too fast. I'll actually count out loud, or when the respiratory tech is down there, they bag too quickly all the time. Once again, the adrenaline is rushing, it's hard to bag slow. I'll actually have people count out loud, just the way I did a minute ago, to make sure that they're bagging no faster than about 10 times per minute. And when we get them on the vent, that's the rate that we'll start with, nothing faster than 10 times per minute. We use low tidal volumes also to make sure they don't get too much pressure in the lungs. So that's one thing I learned. Uh, the second thing I learned is never tell a family everything's going to be okay. Never tell them to head off to the mall, come back in a couple hours, pop's going to be fine, because you just don't know. Never, never downplay the seriousness of anything just for the sake of reassuring a family. It's a fine balance when you're counseling families between trying to reassure them that you're doing your best job and that most likely things will turn out okay, but that we're still worried about X, Y, and Z, and we want to make sure that, that they are going to be okay. Right. And no matter how routine the case may be, when you're dealing with an elderly patient, nothing is going to be routine. There's always a complication that's going to come up. So you, you need to be paranoid of these patients. You know, one of my areas of interest is geriatric emergency medicine. And the thing that I tell the, the residents, it's a little cynical, but I'll tell them to them anyway, elderly patients show up in the emergency department to fool you. Uh, and so you've got to be really, really on guard with these patients. They don't present typically. They don't respond typically. They have atypical complications of what routine things you normally do. So just be very careful with the elderly. Dr. Matu is going to be talking about geriatric ACS at Emergency Medicine Update at this conference. Thanks a lot, Dr. Matu. All right, thanks for having me. It's a real honor. Dr. Matu's best case ever is in anticipation of the Emergency Medicine Update Conference highlights from May of this year, which will be the next big episode. We'll have Stuart Swadron giving you his approach to the challenging patient with vertigo, 
as well as Dr. Matu's review of his favorite cardiology papers from 2013. If you have any burning questions about these two topics, please go to the EM Cases website and click on Next Time on EM Cases from the homepage and submit your question there. I'll be sure to run the questions by Dr. Swadron or Dr. Matu. Just a technical point for those of you trying to get automatic downloads to your phone or tablet or laptop or desktop. While all of the Best Case Ever series are available for download directly from the iTunes store, the best way to get your free full episodes and the Best Case Ever series is directly from the EM Cases website, emergencymedicinecases.com, where you can simply just click on the podcast setup button from the homepage, and it'll take you to easy instructions on how to get your automatic downloads of the EM Cases episodes or Best Case Evers, anything you'd like from the entire library, directly to your phone, tablet, laptop, desktop, or iTunes. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.